Welcome to another episode of the MMA Logcast. I'm your host, Man Breed, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOTN. This week we're going over UFC Vegas 24, headlined by Calvin Gaslam and Robert Whitaker, a fight that was supposed to happen at UFC 234 in February of 2019. Unfortunately, Robert Whitaker was not able to defend his title that night as he, um, I believe he pulled out the morning of the fight and, uh, yeah, just wasn't able to fight. Uh, Kevin Gaston went on to fight uh, Israel Adesanya for the, the interim title. And then after that, obviously, Izzy won, went out there and dethroned um, uh, Robert Whitaker in October of 2019 of that same year. So uh, very unfortunate uh, for them uh, in terms of Whitaker and Gaston not being able to fight that night. But at least we get it two years later. And it's still a fight that I'm very much looking forward to, even though Kevin Gaston is one and two in his last three fights. Robert Whitaker is on a little bit of a, a run right now with wins over Darren Till and Jared Cannonier after dropping his title to Israel Adesanya. So very interested to see how he approaches this fight and how he moves forward and if he's able to secure himself a title shot if he does win this weekend. Very much looking forward to this fight, this card, right? There's a, a ton of very solid fights. The most notable is obviously Juan Espino versus Alexander Romanov, which is a very, very intriguing fight between two very grapple-heavy and wrestle-heavy fighters. And both guys are kind of on the come-up. It's weird to call Juan Espino a prospect considering that he's 40 years old, but he's only had two fights inside the UFC at this point in time. And he's still a guy that's climbing the ranks and trying to really you know, make a note or mark for himself in this top five to top seven uh, of the heavyweight division vision but uh, Romanov is definitely a very tough out and I can't wait to see how that fight plays out a ton of other great fights on the card that I'm really much looking forward to Tracy Cortez versus Justin Keish um, Tony Gravely versus uh, Anthony Burchak a lot of fun fights definitely that are on the docket even um co-main event Jakar Close versus Jeremy Stevens very very fun fight could be a good striking contest and I can't wait to see how that one plays out all right um Let's get into the betting recap. You know what I mean, last week we had two events. We had Bellator 256 on, on the Friday, and then we have UFC Vegas 23 on the Saturday, and both of them end up being winning events for us. Let's start off out with uh, UFC 256. The dog of the night play does whiff. We get Leona Machida uh, plus 266. I had to take the shot there. thought the line was a little bit off. thought we were going to get at least three rounds of cardio and three rounds of takedown defense from Leona Machida. Unfortunately, it only ended up being for, for one round. He was very successful in that first round, and then after that, it was all downhill, where we saw Ryan Bader land takedowns time and time again, and then eventually uh, notch that uh, decision victory for himself, and he moves on in the light heavyweight tournament. So minus one unit for us there, but the do uh, the lock of the night play definitely comes through for us under two under two and a half in the Katzengano and Olivier Par or yeah Olivia. Parker fight, uh, minus 171 at four units. That catches for a plus 2.34 units. Uh, as soon as I saw the tape on Olivia Parker, I'm like, gotta take the under two and a half, right? Kadzingano is easy going to submit this woman, and that's exactly what she did, snatching up that arm within two minutes of that first round. So that was very, very uh, good for us. So we cash on that uh, event, Belgium 256, plus 1.34 units for a 27% return on ROI. But we're in the green, and that's all that matters. Uh, next up, we had the next evening, Bellator, or sorry, UFC Vegas uh, 23. 
The only play that we lost was a 0.25 sprinkle on Jack Shore to beat Hunter Azure in round three at plus 1400. More than happy to lose the sprinkle there, considering that uh, I felt that the round three prop there was very, very live. But Hunter Azure definitely stayed in that uh, third round a lot better than I expected him to. So, so hats off to Azure there, but shout out to Jack Shore for completing that uh, that crazy parlay that I had. It was like 250 bucks to win 4K, so happy to, to cash that, but still uh, happy to see Jack Shore get his hand raised that night. Next up, we had our dog of the night play, one unit at plus 122 on Arnold Allen. That cashes. That fight was, you know, more of a chess match. It wasn't as crazy as a, a back-and-forth fight as most people expected it to be. But Arnold Allen landed the two significant shots that landed, that meant the most in this fight. In the first round and in the second round, he was able to hurt Sadiq Yusuf, and that was ultimately what sway, swayed the fight his way. It seemed like he was really sucking wind in that third round, and Sadiq Yusuf was starting to come on there. But Arnold did a really good job in terms of nullifying the pressure and the power that was coming his way in that third round allowing him to get that decision victory once the judges scorecards were read and then lastly five units at minus 225 for our lock of the night play on joe selecki over jim miller don't get me wrong that first round was definitely a sweat when we saw joe selecki go out there and pull guard not exactly what i was expecting to see from him in that first round but thankfully he goes in the second and third round and secures that takedown relatively quickly to pretty much grind out the the top pressure stay active enough so that the referee didn't stand them up and that cashes our lock of the night play plus 2.22 units there ultimately giving us plus 3.19 units on the night and i'm more than happy with that that is seven straight winning events in a row and it all started with us going back to the old school lock of the night method and that old school lock of the night method is not going anywhere i'm going to be doing that moving forward i don't give a fuck if it makes me look like a square betting minus 180 minus 150 minus 220 favorites if it's hitting that means money is in your bank account and that's all that matters to me and that's what the approach was as soon as i started making this lock of the night brand four years ago i want something that i can bet on as close to guaranteed as possible on a week-to-week basis so that i can guarantee that i'm going to be having some money coming in uh, again nothing is ever a lock but i'm always going to give you guys my best most confident play with odds no worse than minus 350 and i can't even remember the last time i played anything even over minus 300 straight uh, i think kobe covington over tyron wildey but that one was a no-brainer um even sprinkled a little bit on that round five so that definitely helped add some money to the pot but yeah this is the approach that we're moving forward and it's uh, moving forward with and it's definitely going to keep cashing for us hopefully it keeps cashing for us and remains a very profitable approach for us with that said next weekend or this weekend i should say bellator 257 if we hit that that's eight straight events if we hit ufc vegas 24 that's nine straight events and my my biggest ever winning streak is nine straight events and i'm hoping that we can capitalize on that this week and we can tie that this weekend with a win for bellator and a win for ufc and then go into ufc 261 hoping to crack that 10 uh, event winning streak and i'm hoping that that's exactly what we can do so shout out to all the new patreon members shout out to everybody that's supporting shout out to all the new subscribers you guys are just making it all more worth it and i'm glad that you guys can bank on me to give you guys your surest pick every uh pretty much every bellator and every c every ufc fight night because that's what the lock of the night does that's what i'm here for so that pretty much brings us right over to my my sponsor callouts that i want to give real quick coolbet.com if you guys are looking for a new bookie coolbet.com is amazing they allow you to parlay props which is something that a lot of people usually look for especially if they like you know a little lottery tickets here and there but they also give you great odds on certain spots too my lock of the night play for this weekend for ufc 
I made on Corbett because they had the best line uh, out of all the bookies that I currently use. So shout out to Corbett. If you guys sign up to Corbett, use the promo code MMALOTN2 when you sign up and I get you a little bit of a kickback after you guys do your initial deposit. Again, they match your initial deposit up to 100% up to 100 bucks. So if you put in 200 bucks, they'll match you 200 bucks. So you got 400 bucks to play with. So make sure you guys check out CoolBet, CoolBet.com, promo code MMALOTN2. The, the, the countries that you can actually play it in are listed in the description below. So make sure you guys check that out. Most notably, it's not available in the States, which kind of sucks because I know I'd get a bunch of people uh, that, uh, that can play from the States. But we are getting some good uh, reviews and getting some good feedback from people that are signing up, even from Canada, Switzerland, Scandinavian countries, some South American countries as well. So shout out to CoolBet. Once again, it's CoolBet.com promo code MMALOTN number two and you guys will get a uh, uh, an initial bonus up to 200 bucks uh, for your initial deposit secondly Patreon Patreon is the best way you guys can continue to support your boy to do this on a uh, on a on a weekly basis to do this full time. I've been doing it full time for close to three weeks now, and it's all thanks to you guys through the Patreon, through the YouTube, through the subscribing, through the, the super chats, through all that shit. It's all thanks to you guys that I'm able to put my full effort and full focus on this game, and that's probably why we're on a fucking seven event winning streak. Because I can finally focus on the shit full time without having too much stuff clouding my judgment. So I appreciate you guys. The best and easiest way to support me is through Patreon. Five bucks a month. You guys get all access to my picks, early breakdowns, a best bets and props article, which I put out every single Wednesday of UFC Fight Week, which gives you guys the best bet and best prop for every single fight on the card, not to mention a confidence rating on every single bet, so you guys can at least know where my head is at and how confident I am on each single pick. Now, I'm very low volume with my betting and official betting approach, right, where I just give you a lock of the night play and a dog of the night play, which is why the best bets and props article comes into hand uh, or comes handy, becomes very handy uh, to if you guys want or are looking for a little bit more action. All right, again, patreon.com slash MMALOTN, link is in the description below. I much appreciate all your support and love through that. All right, don't want to waste too much more of your time. Let's get into the breakdowns, and I hope you guys enjoy uh, the, the breakdowns, and I'll see you guys throughout the week. We got the DFS live stream noon on Thursday evening. We got propping you up at 8 p.m. Eastern on Thursday evening with me and Cody. A Friday live stream for the Wayans. I believe that starts at noon Eastern, taking us all the way up to about, to about 2 p.m. Eastern, and then Friday night, the ultimate Wayans show. We had a great reception the last time around. I can't wait to see what kind of reception we get this time when we have a little bit of an odds reunion with clint from Die Hard mma podcast coming on it um bleed just bleed mma and lastly mma prediction guru my boy can't wait to have all those guys on the same panel to break down ufc vegas 24 one last time can't wait to do that for you guys this week all right enjoy the breakdowns and uh yeah good luck with your bets Tony Gravely versus Anthony Birdcheck. We got minus 320 on uh, Gravely and plus 260 on Birdcheck. Now, let's start off with the Gravely side of things, who's coming off a decision victory over uh, Geraldo de Freitas in a very, very close fight, I will admit, but he still deserved to get the victory in that fight, in my opinion. Before that, he goes out there and gets submitted by Brett Johns uh, in the third round, and that was a very, uh, you know... Brett Johns is a high-level opponent. I'm very uh, very saddened to see that he had jumped over to Bellator, uh, and we won't get to see Brett Johns any further in the UFC, but hopefully he's able to rack up some good wins over there in Bellator and then eventually come back to the UFC and possibly get a better contract because I honestly think that that was the reason that he jumped ship because the UFC just didn't want to renew him to get a good enough contract. But... 
we've been seeing a lot of good things from Gravely, even on the regional scene before coming to the UFC. He already had a you know a 23 fight pro career before coming onto the Dana White Contender Series and eventually getting that KO victory over Ray Rodriguez uh, to notch his uh, you know arrival into the into the UFC. I think he has great wrestling. I think he has great top pressure. I think he has decent enough striking to be able to clunch up to his opponents and then get them to the ground. But I'm also very impressed with his cardio, as I believe we have seen him go four to five rounds in the past, and he's been been able to hold up his grapple-heavy approach in every single fight. Anthony Burchick, on the other hand, you got him coming off a submission loss to Gustavo Lopez in a fight where he got hurt and pretty much club and subbed by, by Gustavo Lopez there. But Burchick is a high-level black belt in jiu-jitsu. Uh, I believe he owns a 10th planet location, if I'm not mistaken. But that's definitely his approach to winning his fights, is trying to get his opponents to the ground and try to get that submission game going. So he might be in his you know in a comfortable realm on his back more often than not here against Gravely. But I think Gravely is going to do a really good job in terms of nullifying whatever submission attempts are going to be coming off of Anthony Birchek's back. Uh, I think he has good top pressure in terms of uh, uh, you know the the damage that he's able to land from on top, and he's all, more often than not seeking the submission or he's seeking the finish. And I'm talking about Tony here. Uh, I, I think he should cruise here. I don't think that Birchek truly offers too much for uh, Gravely to worry about here. I don't think that Birchek has crazy knockout power. He might have the cleaner, crisper striking, but Gravely has that you know rudimentary uh, wrestling style of striking, which is just looping hooks trying to close the distance to get his wrestling game going but i think he'll be very successful in doing that uh in this fight he'll be at a three inch reach or height disadvantage as well as pretty much the same reach here as Birchek. but i don't think that's truly going to come into play here as gravely should be able to close the distance and get this fight down repeatedly um the the minus 475 favorite thing for Birchek, where he lost you know four or five fights ago uh to ji hoon moon is a little bit too much of an outlier for me to overlook here and then obviously he comes into the Rad Liam fight as a minus 1340 favorite. But, you know, level of competition completely off. I think Gravely is just really going to make him work here. I don't think that Birchak is going to get much going off of his back. And he's going to succumb to the pressure and the pace that Gravely is going to be putting on him, especially with that wrestling. So I'll be going with Gravely here. I think it was his fight via decision just by completely outpointing uh, Anthony Birchak in all aspects of the MMA game. Zara Farn versus Josiane Nunez. We got plus 105 on Farn and minus 125 on Nunez. Let's start off on the Farn side of things. Who's coming into her third uh, fight in the UFC? She was very unfortunately matched up against two higher level women at that 145 pounds uh, weight class. And again, that was more so the UFC trying to fill out that division, which to this point still has uh, really not fleshed out and worked out to their to their plans. Um, so the first fight against uh, Megan Anderson, she comes in as a plus 335 underdog. Uh, Megan Anderson lands a good takedown, does some good work from on top. And Farron really does show her greenness when it comes to the grappling game. Now, she is a blue belt in jiu-jitsu, but we did see none of that against Megan Anderson, who was able to lock up a triangle choke after Farron did seem to, uh, you know, buck very well and try to get off from that bottom position. But she was just not able to, you know, keep in mind that she she allowed Megan Anderson to clear her shoulder and get that leg over to truly get that uh, triangle choke and deep the way that she was then uh felicia spencer you know she did a good job of kind of keeping her on the outside initially but then spencer did a good job in terms of when they were up against the cage at one point Farron didn't have the urgency to get back off the uh the cage and that's where felicia was able to quickly close the distance push her up against the cage get the fight to the ground and then get her ground and pound going which she was able to take her out of there in that first round uh like i said via ground and pound 
But in her regional fights and the fights leading up to the UFC, you see some good work from her and why she was as successful as she was before coming to the UFC. You know, she's a tall girl for this weight class. She's 5'8 with a 72-inch reach. And more often than not, it looks like she has a size advantage over her opponents. She's able to keep her opponents at bay, use her long jab, use her long striking. And I wish we saw a little bit more volume from her and a little bit more pop, but it seems to be working out for her on the regional scene. Her last fight before coming to the UFC against Isabel Badurik left a little bit to be desired, right? Badurik didn't just seem like, or didn't seem like a woman that truly wanted to be in there after about a minute or so in that fight. But uh, the the Salmimi's fight and the Hughes fight, you see her, and even the Sinead fight, which she ended up losing by split decision, she did a good job of keeping the fight on the feet and really just uh, push, uh, you know, pressuring her opponents with her long uh, distance striking and, and, and her jab and her kicks. She seems to have a good striking game from that aspect. Now Nunes, on the other hand, is coming into this UFC fight uh, or her UFC debut here with a 7-1 record. Her only loss, I believe, was in her second fight against now UFC fighter Tyler Santos, and it seemed like she jumped over to the same uh, training camp as Tyler Santos after that loss back in 2013. Now she's with the Astro Fight team, who you know is synonymous for being known to kind of pad their records or the opponents, the record of their fighters against opponents that really aren't up to snuff when it comes to you know when you're talking about UFC level of competition there's a lot of fighters on Nunes's record that are 0-0, 0-1, 0-4 and their last couple of fights were against 3-0 and 4-0 opponents but they seem to have issues when it comes to the the cardio part of it right it seems like Nunes is almost losing all of her fights up until her opponents start to gas a little bit and then she's able to crash forward with her bull type style uh, and really blitz these opponents and overwhelm them with strikes um, she's very wild. She's very raw with her striking, right? She throws a little bit too wild, a little bit too whoop, loopy to, to truly cut it against a girl like Zara Farron, who, you know, this could look like a bull and matador type of situation where Nunes is crashing forward, but uh, Zara is throwing her jab out there, throwing her long strikes out there to keep Nunes at bay. Um, we've seen fighters have success against Nunes in terms of taking her down and just riding her out from on top, but she does good, do a decent job of getting back to her feet, but gives up too much control time where the, the round is more than likely going to be scored for the opponent that actually gets a takedown. That's not really Zara's game though, right? Zara is more of a striker. She's a little bit... I don't want to say clueless on the ground because she is a blue belt, but she is def definitely not as effective on the ground as she is on the feet. My concern here is if Nunez looks to close the distance and try to get this fight to the ground, right? This is going to be a comically... It's going to be comical once we see the, uh, these fighters uh, weigh in and, and, and stare down against each other. We got a 5-2 Nunez that come, coming in at 135 pounds with the 67-inch reach. And you're going to have Zara Farron 6 inches taller and have a 5-inch reach advantage. So Farron's not able to keep her distance. Nunez could make this a tough, gritty fight. Again, she's very bulldogish. She's very pitbullish where it's just coming forward and throwing a, a barrage of shots and trying to overwhelm her opponents. Um, but outside of that, like it's, it doesn't really look that pretty. Her, her again, her technique just looks a little bit too wild, not not refined enough, and it, she's just, um, she's banking too much on her her ferocity and and her ability to kind of overwhelm fighters. Whereas I feel like Zara is going to be prepared for that type of approach and just try to just continuously jab and keep Nunes on the outside. My concern is if Nunes looks to take this fight to the ground, right? Again, Farron, um, her reach advantage will mean nothing if uh, Nunes is on top of her or clinching her up against the cage or trying to drag her to the ground. 
But I think that Zara will do a decent job, decent enough job in terms of continuously uh, being on her bicycle and uh, you know meeting Nunes with a jab or a, or a cross anytime Nunes wants to close the distance and try to get her striking going. It's not going to look the prettiest, but I do think that we see Zara outpoint uh, Nunes en route to a decision victory. And I will give this to uh, Nunes. You know, she's quite durable. She's eaten a lot of big shots from her opponents. And her cardio looks to be pretty good, which is why she's always able to outlast her opponents and then finish them, you know, deeper into the second round. But Farron's cardio in her past fights where she has gone for three rounds looks really, really good, right? She's still able to go out there, put out the jab, put out the cross, keep her opponents on the end of her punches. But I just want to see a little bit more volume from her. And I do want to see her kind of tighten up that takedown defense a little bit more, which she has shown to, you know, really work out for her. The more she's able to wear on her opponents with her striking, her opponent's takedowns start to come a little bit slower. That's where we see her successful with sprawling and, and really getting out of the way of these uh, takedown attempts from her opponents. So she's going to have to damage Nunes right off the bat. And that's where it comes down to is Nunes going to look for the takedown right off the bat or is she going to try her pit bull bulldoggy style that has been successful with her against much lower level opponents and is Zara Farron going to be able to, to you know uh, deal with that. So I'm going Zara here. I think she's a solid spot here at Dog Odds. I wouldn't be surprised if she actually closes at uh, as a favorite in this fight. So if you are looking to bet Zara, I think you better do it now before the rest of the world gets privy to the you know, to the inaccurate line, I should say, you know, I'd, I'd actually put Zara Farron closer to like a minus 120, minus 130 favorite. And I think it's more so the fact that people, you know, the last couple of times we've seen Zara in the cage, it hasn't been the prettiest, right? But she's going up against much higher level opponents compared to what Nunes is going to be bringing to the table. And then people are just wiki capping Nunes at this point, right? She's seven and one, has a ton of KO victories on her record. But when you really start looking at those fights and seeing that, some of the fights she's not really winning up until the point she gets the KO. Um, she sees she leaves a lot to be uh, to 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 be concerned. And then again, once we see the uh, the stare down as well, I think people are going to start to look into the Zara Farron side a little bit more and start putting money on her. So again, if you're looking to bet Zara, do it now. I don't think you'll be getting a better line closer fight time. And I'm personally going to be taking her here as well, and I'm taking her to win this fight via decision. Austin Hubbard versus Dakota Bush. We got minus 175 on Austin Hubbard and plus 145 on Dakota Bush. And the line is slowly starting to rise uh, and starting to get wider as we see uh, Austin Hubbard at minus 185, minus 190 at a couple of spots. And I completely understand it in regards to being the, you know, the UFC tested guy, being the guy that's actually been in there for a couple of fights now. Um... I do just want to quickly refresh my page here to see if the line has moved even more since it is a relatively new fight compared to the rest of the slate. Uh, plus 155 or plus 160 is the best line that we can currently get on Dakota Bush. But regardless, uh, getting back to this fight, let's start off with Austin Hubbard, who, you know, he's had five fights in the UFC now, and the UFC is giving him no favors. The guy's two and three in his UFC career with uh, his two wins coming over Kyle Prepperlick, who is a striker himself, and Austin Hubbard was able to go out there and outstrike him. And then the other one was over that Max Roshkov fight, if you guys remember that. That was the one where Roshkov just had a complete energy dump after, I believe, the second round. 
and uh, just didn't want to go out for the third round at all. Just pretty much quit on the stool. And uh, Robert Drysdale tried to get him back into the fight just to, you know, motivate the kid. But uh, Roshkov just said, fuck it, I'm done. I, j- I just can't do it anymore. Wasn't successful getting the fight to the ground. Only had a minute of control time in a fight that a lot of people expected him to have a ton of control time given the amount of hype that was give, uh, put on him coming into the UFC. You know, he was only a purple belt under Robert Drysdale uh, for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but he had a very high ceiling regarding his wrestling background and what he was able to do on the regional scene before coming uh, into the UFC. And if I'm not mistaken, he actually took that fight on short notice and they promptly cut him right after that. And rightfully so, um, pretty much putting on to the... Uh, uh, pretty much letting it be known that he just wasn't ready for the UFC and it makes absolute sense but his other three fights right all three solid grapplers you got you got a, a fighter and Davy Hamosh who's a high level jiu-jitsu black belt wasn't able to get the fight down to the ground as much as he wanted to and he did uh, but he was re- uh, controlling the striking ranges as well as Austin Hubbard was pretty much just waiting for a shot at all times so he was on edge the entire time so Davy Hamosh did a lot of good work from that point Marco Madsen another fighter where you know, uh, high-level Olympic wrestler, and he was able to get Austin Hubbard down time and time again. But Hubbard did a good job of getting back to his feet and really putting it on, putting it on him in the striking realm. However, Marco Madsen was able to come away with the decision victory with way too much control time, the takedowns, and having landing some good shots from those positions. Then the Joe Selecki fight, we didn't need much time in there. You know, I mean, I believe it was only about a minute and a half to two minute of uh, two minutes worth of a fight where Joe Selecki just you know went for a takedown and pushed Hubbard up against the cage. Hubbard trying to get out of the position gives up his back so like he jumps on his back and then eventually rubs in or uh, sinks in that rear naked choke choke and gets the finish in that fight now here with Dakota Bush he's getting a guy that's coming in on short notice once again uh but another solid wrestler uh, Missouri State champion uh for wrestling uh high level uh, wrestler obviously has a lot of success on the regional scene with his wrestling and I feel like it's going to cause some troubles here for Austin Harbor my issue is though is that Short notice fight for Bush probably is always ready. You know what I mean? He wants to go out there and, and remain a fighter that is um, uh, that is ready to go in case the UFC did call upon his name. And that's exactly what they did for this weekend and he was ready to go. The last time he did compete was January of this year, January 29th to be specific, where he was able to quickly dispose of a guy named Austin Clem uh, in a fight that he came in as like a minus 500 favorite. So it was pretty much a foregone conclusion that he was going to be able to do that. Uh, so once again, he is coming in on short notice here, but he is fighting at the weight class that he normally fights at, which is lightweight. So it's good for him that he's uh, going to be able to do that. He is the same size relatively, if not slightly bigger than Austin Hubbard. And I think he's going to look to impose that will upon him with constant takedown, constant pressure and uh, keeping him backing up. I believe Hubbard will have the advantage of the feet. You know, I'll always bring this up. The reason his nickname is Austin Thud Hubbard is that apparently every time he kicks, it always makes a thud sound. And the guy definitely has a lot of power on his kicks and he's able to really cripple his opponents if he's able to get uh, get those shots off su- successfully. My only concern, like I said here, is the fact that it's on short notice, right? If it was a full training camp for Dakota Bush... Uh, I'd be a little bit more uh, enthused to take him here. I will take him here still. You know what I mean? I, again, stylistically, I think it presents a lot of troubles for Austin Herbert, and he seems to have a pretty good enough gas tank that he should be able to at least beg two rounds here and then survive enough on the feet uh, in the in the third round if he's not able to secure takedowns and then come away with a decision victory. So I think this is a good underdog spot here for Dakota Bush, who's a UFC debutante, and a lot of people might just be jumping on Austin Herbert just because, like, all right, 
you know the guy has five fights in the UFC taking a short notice UFC newcomer but I think there's a reason that uh, you know he's not a minus 300 or minus 400 favorite in this spot because Dakota Bush is a very solid talent there's a reason the guy was a minus 300 minus 400 favorite in his uh, in a couple of his regional fights because he can go out there and impose as well with his wrestling. And I think he'll be able to do that here against Hubbard. Hubbard does good, do a good job of getting back to his feet. So that is my concern here. How good is the cardio of Dakota Bush from what I've seen? It's been decent, but I could definitely use some work. And again, coming in on short notice, who knows how uh, polished it is and ready to go to fight a guy like Austin Hubbard who's going to be moving and not really settling on bottom and not really giving you a, an easy layup for a win here, especially if you're just able to uh, secure the takedown right off the bat. I will still go with Bush, right? He's around plus 145, plus 155 currently. But as the fight gets closer, I'm expecting the line to start to widen a little bit more. So if you want to remain patient, I think you'll be able to get a better line on Dakota Bush the, the, the closer that the fight gets. And that's that might be where I, where I uh, pull, the, pull the trigger myself. Um, again, good underdog spot. Uh, I, I think it should be closer to a 50-50 fight. Uh, Austin, Austin does have a really good shot of winning this fight himself, but I will go with the fighter that has the grappling advantage, that does have the high-level wrestling experience, and I like Dakota Bush here to go out there and grind himself a decision victory in his UFC debut. Gerald Mearshart versus Bartos Fabinski. We got plus 110 on GM3 and minus 130 on Bartos Fabinski. Now this fight, another binary fight to kind of break down where you got Bartos Fabinski who just always comes into his fights looking to outgrapple his opponents, get them to the ground and just kind of lay and pray. Right? He doesn't really have any devastating ground and pound uh, power from on top, nor does he often uh, look. Nor does he often look for uh, submissions to try to get his opponents out there. He's just confident in taking his opponents down, laying on top of them, staying busy enough that the referee won't stand them up, and then taking home a decision victory. However. Once he starts fighting guys that have a little bit of a jiu-jitsu game or a solid jiu-jitsu game, he starts to fall into trouble, which is why he's lost two out of his last three fights. One of those, uh, the first one being Michel Prezerich, where uh, we saw him fall into a guillotine choke after being a little bit too desperate on his takedown attempts. Now, the, the Andre Munoz fight, another fight where he almost fell into a guillotine choke, but ultimately ended up giving an armbar up to Andre Munoz, who was very offensive off of his back and making sure that you know he had capitalized on any mistakes that Fabinski was making on the ground. Now, Gerald Mearshart brings a solid game to the table as well when we're talking about jiu-jitsu. He may not be as reliable as guys like Michel Prezerich and uh, Andre Munoz, but he's still a threat in those situations. I'm expecting him to have the striking advantage here, not by a whole lot, but Fabinski doesn't really commit much to his strikes. He's just throwing a jab out there. He's throwing a straight out there just to kind of gauge his distance, and then more often than not, he's just waiting to get you into that position where you're on the warning track, and then push you forward, push you up against the cage, and then eventually drag you to the ground. So I'm expecting GM3 to be slightly... Um, to be slightly active in the striking realm so that he gets Fabinski to throw a bit of a desperation shot and then probably locking up a Darce or a guillotine choke of some sort. But even if this fight does end up hitting the ground, I think that Mearshart is active enough off of his back that he's going to make Fabinski very uncomfortable. And not to mention the fact that we've seen GM3 go out there and complete submission victories in the third round against much higher level opponents. So the, the longer that this fight goes and the fact that you're possibly giving me 15 minutes for Jerome Mearshart to potentially throw up a submission of some sort or lock in a a guillotine choke on a desperation takedown against Bartos Fabinski. Yeah, I'm I'm down to take uh, the underdog shot at GM3 as I believe it's more than uh, likely that he can snatch that snatch that uh, submission up. Uh, again, Fabinski doesn't present much of uh, an offering on the feet, whereas GM3 still could use some uh, tweaking in a striking game. But he'll definitely have the advantage here over Fabinski, who again is just. 
he got nothing on the feet. I'm trying to be as nice about it as possible, but there's really not much that he offers on the feet other than just being able to set up his takedowns behind his striking, which again is very, very minuscule uh, at, the, at the most, just being generous with it. I was kind of surprised that Fabinski was as big of a dog as he was against Darren Stewart in that Cage Warriors fight that they had uh, just at the beginning of COVID where he was a plus 270 dog. That seemed like a solid spot for him to go out there and grapple fuck a striker and that's exactly what he did against Darren Stewart. But then once you put him up against guys with a solid jiu-jitsu uh, background or at least a solid understanding of the jiu-jitsu game he finds himself into trouble. And I think that's what's going to happen here with Jared Mirashard eventually locking up a, a, a submission of some sort, whether it's in the first round, second round, or third round. This could potentially be a third round prop spot for Jared Mirashard, who seems to have that durability and that uh, that resiliency to get fi uh, finishes late in fights, especially in fights that he'll probably be worked on uh, more than he'll be here against uh, Bartos Fabinski. So I'm going to go with Jared Mirashard, and I'll probably I'll take him either by first or third round submission, but I definitely think that he's going to lock something up here against Fabinski who's just too rudimentary too one-dimensional and just too reliant on laying and preying on his opponents and now he's going to have to deal with uh, a guy in Mearshart who's a big strong intimidating guy himself too I'm sure he'll have uh, the advantage in terms or he should have some strength to him which should allow him to potentially create some space on the ground and eventually throw up a submission of some sort uh, or a reversal and then get to work from on top so I'm going Gerald Mearshart by first round submission Jessica Penne versus Lapita Godinez. We got minus 275 on the UFC newcomer and plus 235 on the veteran Jessica Penne. Let's start off on the Penne side of things, who was originally scheduled to fight Hannah Goldie this weekend. However, uh, and even a couple weeks before they were scheduled to fight, I believe there was a COVID situation regarding one of the cornermen that the fight eventually had to get postponed. And then Hannah Goldie unfortunately had to pull out. I'm not sure exactly why. And uh, Jessica Penne uh, takes on the newcomer in Godinez here. Now, Penne hasn't been in the cage for close to four to five years now where the last time we saw her was a decision loss to Danielle Taylor and a lot of people thought that was probably going to be her uh, pretty much her pink slip out of the UFC but the UFC is keeping her around she was an ultimate fighter contender um or sorry, an Ultimate Fighter uh, veteran, uh, and she actually did get a UFC title shot uh, right after Yanni and Jacek had captured it from Carla Esparza. And again, this was a long time ago. Since then, she's gone 0-3, where she gave up losses to uh, uh, Jessica Andrade and obviously Danielle Taylor last time around. But she didn't really get to show off her grappling game, which is definitely the shining part of her uh, of her just overall game. Right, if you go back and watch her fights in the Invicta scene, you see her pulling off these beautiful triangles and arm bars and and beautiful submission victories because she is definitely very crafty on the ground. She's able to find submissions from awkward places. But if she's not able to get the fight to the ground, she truly struggles on the feet. She doesn't have the greatest striking. She doesn't really have the most commitment on her strikes. And that that's where I think that Godinez is really going to start to fly off the paper here in terms of uh, really taking over this fight. Now, Godinez will be at a three-inch reach or height disadvantage as well as a four-inch reach disadvantage, but she's been the smaller fighter in the past and she's always been able to enter the pocket without uh, too much concern and get her big strikes off. Now, the first couple of exchanges might be a little bit tough for Godinez to get comfortable as Pene uh, may look to go out there and try to, you know, get a trip or, or, you know, catch her off guard with a takedown attempt, but it looks like Godinez is very, very strong and she did a good job of keeping Vanessa Demopoulos off of her last time around over the majority of uh, five rounds. I'm expecting Demopoulos to have the same type of approach that Panay was going to be having uh, in terms of trying to get this fight to the ground. And I'm just not overly sold on Panay's ability uh, with her wrestling and her, and her takedown attempts. 
who knows what kind of improvements though that she's going to be making over the last several years right she's been off for so long she had this weird to USADA suspension you got to believe that she's been staying training and staying in the gym and staying with her friends who are all pretty much fighters so you got to believe that she's been with Alliance MMA and just staying uh staying ready in case whenever her you know trial and all this USADA shit was going to be over with because she wanted to get back into the cage and really start to take advantage of the years that she had to was forced forced to take off She's 38 years old, right? You're talking about four to five years off. That was 33, 34 years old when she had to when she had her last fight. That's like the golden years of her to go out there and probably get her her best performances under her belt, but she just wasn't able to. Now she's coming in against a young, hungry up-and-comer, a 27-year-old Godinez who just has great crisp and ferocious striking, which should cause Jessica Penne a ton of problems on the feet. And I find it hard to believe that Penne is going to be able to deal with that, uh, get through those strikes and uh, land takedowns. I just don't see it happening. With that said, Godinez still has a lot to prove, right? Level of opponents have been very, very... Uh, Definitely not up to snuff compared to what she's going to get here against Jessica Panay. But I think that this is a great first fight for Ganinez to uh, to get her feet wet in the UFC and start taking on other comers. I would love to see her against Hannah Goldie next, actually, given the fact that Goldie is a very strong striker herself. And uh, it would be interesting to see how uh, Godinez navigates those types of waters. But I do like Godinez here. I think she's going to win this fight just picking apart uh Pinay from the outside and i wouldn't be surprised if we actually see a clipper uh with a big enough shot to potentially put her out now in the five victories that Godinez does have on her pro record she hasn't won any fight by knockout especially given with how uh, devastating some of her com uh, combinations look kind of surprised that she doesn't have it on her record but she definitely busted up vanessa demophilus nice and early in that fight and i'm kind of surprised that vanessa was able to go a full five even after taking those shots in the first and second rounds I was very impressed with uh, Godinez's uh, performance against Lindsay Garbat, who, for Canadian uh, combat sports fans, they'll know that Garbat, I believe she was on the Canadian boxing team. I could be off on that, but she was uh, a boxer before transitioning over to MMA. So, uh, you know, she has a, a lot of experience in the boxing realm, but Godinez did a really good job in terms of piecing her up and really not letting Garbat's game go. So, uh, yeah, I like Godinez here. I think she outstrikes. Penne over 15 minutes and she takes home a decision victory in her UFC debut. Juan Espino versus Alexander Romanov. We got minus 140 on King Kong Romanov and plus 120 on El Wapo, Mr. Juan Espino. Let's start off on the Juan Espino side of things, who is an Ultimate Fighter winner. Um, he did secure his victory over uh, Justin Frazier to nab that Ultimate Fighter contract. Um, it came in as a minus 175 dog, but as soon as you see that fight, you're kind of mystified as to why the odds were as close as they were. Um, so he does pull off a quick submission victory in that fight. I believe it came via Americana. And then he goes out there and scarf hold chokes uh, Jeff Hughes on a fight island, uh, you know, securing the victory as a minus 245 favorite. Um, you know, he is 40 years old. He is from Spain, but he seems to be uh, spending most of his time down in Florida in Coconut Creek at American Top Team. And obviously that's something that's going to help him really round out his game. He's a very good wrestler. You know, I believe he has a, I'm trying to remember the name of it. It's like some sort of African wrestling promotion or something where he was like one, he was named the White Tiger because he was able to go out there and beat, uh, you know, a lot of Africans who obviously were dominating that sport, but he was able to go out there and just win titles uh, year and year again just off of wrestling. You know, very strong wrestler. He was closer to the 300 pound range, 330 pound range when he was fighting for those guys or competing competing for those guys but as he has gotten his MMA game going he's slowly starting to come down in weight 
if you guys have seen that one fight that he has pre-UFC against Vitaly Minikov where he gets knocked out in nine seconds the guy's coming in at 310 pounds and you can definitely see it in his physique and even in his movement he just looked very stiff and just didn't seem like he was very comfortable in the MMA game hence why he was able to get stiffed very quickly by Vitaly Minikov like I said within nine seconds but since then you know the only real tape that we have on him is his uh, time on the Ultimate Fighter and then obviously the Jeff Hughes fight seems like he's still uncomfortable on the feet uh, the only real move that he seems to have is that feint to a takedown with the overhand right you got to believe that att is trying to work his uh boxing game and his kickboxing game to truly round that out so that he's able to hide his takedowns a little bit better than uh you know what he's been able to do in the past the higher he starts taking uh you know levels of competition especially here against alexander romanov the harder it's going to be to secure these takedowns and and try to really uh you know close the distance without getting hit too much and then getting his opponents down which is where he thrives the most now the difference here between the wrestling games of romanov and espino is more so how effective they are on the ground and the way they are effective on the ground you know espino seems to be looking for submissions more submissions and control more than romanov who is looking for you know getting that dominant position and then raining down heavy shots his king kong hammer fist that he likes to throw that's kind of the difference in terms of the the approach of attack that these guys take once this fight does hit the ground now i believe that romanov is the much uh more agile fighter here the much more athletic fighter which is why you see these crazy belly to belly suplex takedowns or these uh german suplex takedowns you know just throwing guys over the uh you know over his head and all that type of stuff he, he's very power, powerful and very agile as well you know you see crazy head kicks out of him he throws spinning stuff he throws flying stuff whereas Juan Espino is just a little bit more rudimentary in his approach with the striking so that he can try to go out there and just get these guys to the ground because he's just not comfortable on the feet at all the only real success that we've saw seen Espino have on the feet is again that feint to a overhand or feint takedown to an overhand right there he was able to land beautifully on a guy like Marie Screen with that said Marie screen is a far cry from what we're getting here in alexander romanov now romanov is a guy that obviously is from moldova but he seemed to recently move over to baltimore maryland i'm not entirely sure why he chose that location to be specific but he has been getting in time there it seems with guys uh, on the college wrestling teams to whatever that college is down there in baltimore and he's staying very active in terms of just making sure that he's rounding out his wrestling game it seems like the credentials are going to be on the side of Espino when it comes to the wrestling game but uh, Romanov given his youth and his athleticism probably should be able to trump whatever Espino is going to start to throw his way now Espino is actually going to be the slightly bigger guy here right one inch height advantage as well as a five inch reach advantage but I think he's truly going to have trouble with the the speed disadvantage that he'll be at here with Romanov as well as the the striking advantage that Romanov will have here when these guys are clinched up against the cage I expect Romanov to be a little bit stronger and have a little bit more success in those exchanges and then even when the fight does get to the ground right Espino does a good job of holding guys down like Ben Sassoli but then he seems to struggle to hold some uh, other guys down who seem to you know if they roll to their belly and start to get to their knees and their hands they're able to build back up and get back to their feet and then espino more often than not is successful in dragging these guys back to the ground but how successful is he going to be against a guy as well versed in the wrestling game as alexander romanov 
Romanov seems to do a good job in terms of getting back to his feet when he is taken down. But then again, the only time we've truly seen him taken down was this fight against Sultan Murtazaliyev, who catches one of Romanov's naked kicks and then takes him down, but is only able to keep him down for about 30 to 40 seconds. Romanov gets back to his feet and then gets his wrestling game going, gets his clinch game going, and really starts to work Murtazaliyev, eventually finishing him in that third round. And that's the interesting part of it, right? I'm saying third round specifically because that's the only fight that we have access to where either guy has gone three rounds. Juan Espino has gone three rounds in the past against guys like Rodney Wallace, and there's another guy on his record uh, that, that I can't recall, Boudet, but I'm, you know, don't even know who the fuck that guy is, and you got to kind of, you know, not rate him too highly, but Rodney Wallace is a veteran who's been in the UFC, but is a smaller guy, you know, he's fought at light heavyweight in the past, so I do believe that Espino, you know, given his size and how big he was back in the day, was very successful in terms of getting the rest and going, getting Rodney Wallace down and just controlling him over 15 minutes. I'd find it harder for him to you know do that against a guy like Romanov who's always going to be working and trying to get back to his feet so I'd have to give the slight cardio advantage here to Romanov given what we've seen off of tape and not to mention how active he is and you know the, the ability that he has to just transition as well as he does when he's in the wrestling game and again we haven't seen Espino truly off of his back I believe, I might be mistaken here, but I believe that Espino is a black belt in BJJ, but it doesn't seem like he's the most comfortable or most flexible or the most agile himself. And I think that's where he's going to fall into trouble here with Romanov, who's going to be able to get a step ahead of him and stay um, ahead of him for the majority of this fight. My lean, not lean, my, my legitimate um, pick here is going to be Romanov you know I think we did get better line on him earlier this week when he was about minus 120-ish but even at minus 150 I think up to minus 150 minus 175 I think he still holds some solid value I think the guy is the dark horse of the division but then again he's going to burst out after this performance that he should have against Juan Espino but I think it's going to be very tough for people to deal with the type of style that he has it might seem flashy and it might seem very brutish, but he's very efficient and very successful with the way that he approaches his fights and how he's able to get his opponents out of there. Um, yeah, I like Romanov here. I think he's going to have a lot of success in terms of getting Espino down, really wearing on him, having the better striking instances as well. And I think that's going to really cause Espino a, uh, uh, some concern here. Uh, the, again, the big question mark is how does Espino truly look off of his back? Is Romanov going to have the same amount of success that he's had in the past in terms of holding opponents down? Or is he going to struggle? Is he going to get reversed? Is he going to get submitted um, being on top of Romanov, um, Espino here? But the one thing that I like about Romanov's game is he doesn't settle for that, that, that full guard. He's passing. He's moving to half guard. He's moving to side control. He's getting, you know, he's sitting on your chest in full guard. I don't think sitting on Espino's chest is going to cut it for him here as I believe Espino is much more or brings much more to the table in the grappling realm than guys like Rocky Martinez and Marcos Hajirio de Lima who apparently is a black belt but is able to get choked out uh, with like a it's almost like a, a schoolyard bully move where he was just like a forearm choke um, but that does go further to the attribution of Romanov's strength right that he put uh, de Lima out pretty quickly where de Lima probably thought he was safe so I'm going Romanov here um over one and a half is probably a good spot as this could potentially play out in the grappling round for a little bit but i expect a gas tank of uh, romanov to to um succeed here and i'll take romanov to win this fight probably by 
second round TKO. Not super confident on the over one and a half, but I do think that it is live considering that both these guys are, uh, you know, grapplers and they do want to look to slow down fights. Um, Espino seeks the submission more than he looks for the t- uh, TKO. And same thing with Ro- Romanov. Romanov looks for the TKO more than he looks for the submissions, but he does have submission victories on his record. Uh, Espino, four of his last five wins have come via submission, whereas Romanov, three of his last five wins have come via submission. But again, he looks to drop those Donkey Kong punches and really try to get you out there via TKO more so than submission. So I'm going Alexander Romanov here, and I'm going to take him to win by second round TKO. Tracy Cortez versus Justine Kish. We got minus 255 on Tracy Cortez and plus 215 on Justine Kish. Let's start on the Justine Kish side of things, who's two and, or sorry, th- yeah, two and three in her last five uh, fights. Uh, unfortunately, for her last time around, she was very close to winning a, a, a decision victory over Sabina Mazzo. Unfortunately for her, uh, she caught a head kick near the ending of that fight and uh, it pretty much just you know, sent her into orbit. And then Sabina Mazza was able to quickly jump on top of her and get her a rear naked choke victory there. So very unfortunate way for Justine Kish to lose that fight. She did a lot of good things in that fight in terms of pressuring Sabina Mazzo, continuously staying in her face and just crowding her with a bunch of punches so that Mazzo was not able to get her game going. We saw Alexis Davis be very successful kind of with a similar style, but adding takedowns into the fold against Sabina Mazzo last time. And she was able to stay away from the big kicks and the big uh strikes of Sabina Mazzo and she was successful in taking almost uh, a decision victory but Justine Kish was just a couple a minute or so away from securing that victory I had money on her as well as a plus 180-ish underdog in that spot and I thought I had a really good read on that fight and it was pretty good up until the point that she got knocked out or at least submitted knocked down and then submitted so a very unfortunate loss for her there that would have been two straight wins for her and obviously would have been very good for her considering that she's you know, taking some lulls in between some of her fights. Um, but, you know, the, it's unfortunate, but a lot of people saw some good things from her in that fight. It, it's weird, though, considering the fight that she has coming up here with Tracy Cortez, the last three fights she's had has been pretty much against all strikers. None of those opponents have attempted even one takedown against her. So she's pretty much been able to go out there and use her striking and even use grappling to her own advantage if it was required. Um, but then when you see her going out there and fighting girls that have a bit of a grappling game or a takedown game or a submission game, she struggles a little bit more, right? Even though she got the victory in the Ashley Yoder fight, that was a close fight. Like, I believe that uh, the first fight was almost a 50-50 round and then obviously they split the other two. But a lot of the judges ha- or a lot of uh, media scores had it for you, Ashley Yoder. Uh, same with uh, with some of the... the, the uh, the fans scoring as well on MMA decisions. So very, very close fight for her there. And then the Felice Herrig fight. That's where we see her grappling kind of get truly exposed, right? Felice Herrig is mostly a, a striker, but she has started to develop a solid uh, wrestling and jiu-jitsu game. And we're talking about a fight that was close to four or five years ago at this point in time. But Felice Herrig did a really good job in terms of securing takedowns. And then accumulating, I believe it was close to nine minutes of control time. I do want to confirm that number before I start uh, talking out of my butt, but I'm pretty sure... Um, that was a fight where she really struggled. Well, I know for certain that she struggled to get back to her feet because that's a great fight to kind of look at to confirm whether that this is a good spot to be at, to be backing a girl like Tracy Cortez who's going to be coming with that type of game plan. 
So, uh, yeah, Justine Kish versus Felice Herrig. Felice Herrig went two of five on takedowns and, yeah, controlled for over nine and a half minutes in that fight. And that's a good indication of what Tracy Cortez should be able to do going out there and, and implementing that type of game plan against Kish. Now, don't get me wrong. Kish could obviously make improvements from that amount of time considering, you know, she knows she's going to be going up against a grapple-heavy approach here from Tracy Cortez. But Cortez has pretty much the same amount of fights as her she's going to be five years younger than her but she's been in the gym for a very very long time especially with santino defranco and those guys over there at fight ready her brother her brother was a, a wrestler before he uh his untimely death and that's really what encouraged her to go out there and get you know start pursuing this dream of making it to the ufc um and then she's just training alongside guys like henry cejudo and guys that are coming out of that fight ready camp that are very grapple heavy based and when you watch a couple of her fights you can can see that she's able to uh, really implement it very uh, effectively Tracy Cortez has only lost one fighter in her career and that was her first ever fight where she was doing very well up until the point that she got guillotined and I'm pretty sure she's learned she's learned a lot of lessons from there because she's gone you know uh, pretty much undefeated since that point uh, she has some good victories under her belt especially girls like against girls like Aaron Blanchfield that was a, a, a fight where she used her grappling to the best of her abilities as well as her um as well as her uh, submission defense, right? That entire first round, she was pretty much caught in an armbar position, but did all the good things in terms of ensuring that Aaron Blanchfield was not able to put, take that arm, arm home with her. Then she makes her contender series debut, where she goes up a very uh, goes up against a very striking, uh, heavy threat in Maria Agapova, and then she was able to get that fight down continuously and did some good things on the feet in terms of making sure that she didn't get caught or get into any trouble. Uh, then the Vanessa Mello fight. Now these two fights, Vanessa Mello and Stephanie Edgar fights, are very important here because she took the, both of those fights up at 135 pounds. Up until that point, all of her fights have been 125 pounds. Uh, or sorry, she she took the Mello and Edgar fight at 135 pounds. And up until that point, all of her fights have been competing at 125, but she held her own, own strength-wise against those women who were much bigger than her at that point in time, especially, uh, you know, compared to Justine Kish, she did a very good job. But it was, it was definitely the Stephanie Agra fight that kind of put me over the ledge here uh, to think that Tracy Cortez is truly worth the chalk here and that you're probably even getting value here at minus 255 on her. Uh, Stephanie Eger, Olympic uh, or Olympian judoka, I believe she had some famous matches. I'm not sure if she had beaten Ronda Rousey, or, but she had definitely competed against Ronda Rousey. And that was kind of one of her big things coming into her UFC debut against Tracy Cortez and why a lot of people were looking to uh, back Eger. I believe there was a lot of steam that I eventually took Eger down to plus 125. But Tracy Cortez did a really good job of controlling that fight no matter where it went. She nullified a lot of the, the judo throws from Stephanie Eger and even... Um, uh rolled through on some great uh transitions and and you know had some reversals of her own and she did a really good job in terms of just controlling her and and being dominant with her own grappling style which is mainly just wrestling and obviously she has some good jiu-jitsu as well we've seen her control the back very well of her opponents and we've seen her be very fluid or fluid with the uh with the grappling uh transitions and reversals and and being able to move from one uh from gara to half guard to side control to full mount to taking the back she's just very smooth on the feet or on the ground and then in terms of her feet in terms of her striking it's a work in progress still but it's good enough to be able to go out there and compete against a girl like justine kish who isn't really like a knockout puncher right most of her uh approach is just 
you know, outpointing her opponents and just doing some good work on the feet. Um, the the issue with Justine Kishto is that she doesn't really have the greatest technique in terms of in terms of trying to get back to her feet uh, when she is getting taken down, like in the Felice Herrick fight, right? She's just muscling out of all these positions. She's not really doing the greatest in terms of uh, you know digging the under underhooks that she's needed or or regaining guard or anything like that. She's just trying to get up. And that's just not going to work against a girl like Tracy Cortez, who's who has tall, solid top pressure and ability to keep her opponents down. Now, Keish was able to be successful with that type of get-up game and reversal game against a girl like Ashley Yoder, who's a little bit more keen on seeking submissions rather than actually controlling top position. So you see her able to pull off a couple of reversals in that fight or even be able to get back to her feet against Ashley Yoder, who had some decent control time of her own against Justin Keish. But Cortez, you know, I don't want to say she's not a finisher. She has a couple of finishes on her record, but it seems like she's more content with staying on top, remaining on top, having that dominant position, being position over submission, unlike other women that are in the division, like Jillian Robertson, right? Tracy Cortez knows that's her game, knows she does most of her success or gets most of her success when she's able to stay on top and land those pitter-patter shots to stay active enough that the referee won't stand them up. And then again, passing the guard, going inside control, going a half guard, keeping her opponents down and then landing some good shots from on top. That's where she thrives. And that's exactly what I think she's going to be able to do here against Justine Kish. If Kish was more of a threat on the feet, like if she had knockout power or, you know, if she did a good job of maintaining distance, I wouldn't be as keen on betting Cortez here, who I still believe has some work to do in the striking room. But she's not. You know, I think this is a very winnable fight for Tracy Cortez to go out there and, you know, maybe even stand with her a little bit. I think that she can showcase some of her improvements because she does seem to have a little bit of pop on her shots. She does seem to make be making improvements there. However, I would love to see her just go out there take Keish down, and just dominate from on top. I'm not 100% sure that she's going to be able to go out there and get the finish, but I think she'll be able to at least rack up. I'd be surprised if she didn't get at least one 10-8 round just from an immediate takedown if that's what she chooses to do, and then just top control, staying on top, passing guard, and then landing some good shots from on top. So I do like Cortez here. I think she's absolutely worth the chalk, and I think she should be even a, a bigger favorite in this spot. So I'm going Tracy Cortez to win this fight via decision. Hikaru Hamosh versus uh, Bill Algio just having a little bit of a brain fart there. Uh, this fight's pretty much a pick em. We got a slight favorite here for Bill Algio at minus 115 and minus 105 for uh, Hikaru Hamosh. But there are certain places that you could possibly get him at plus 105 and plus 110. And it seems like the line is starting to widen a little bit. And I don't completely understand that. It might be because that we got Bill Algio coming off a pretty dominant victory over Spike Carlisle last time around. And mixed in the fact that we've seen Hakaro Hamosh knocked out in his last fight against Lerone Murphy. Let's start off on the Hamosh side of things, who's a very heavily touted prospect coming into the UFC. Unfortunately, he did eat a couple of L's in his uh, UFC career thus far, but I still don't think that's truly slowed down, uh, you know, the prospect that he could truly be or the, the fighter that he could truly be once he completes his full potential. He's 25 years old, he's 14-3, and three, and his losses only come against Saeed Nurmagomedov and uh, Lerone Murphy, who are high-level opponents, in my opinion. Uh, he did go out there and beat guys like Kyung Ho Kong, who, in my opinion, I, I hold very highly, and then Journey Newsom and uh, Eduardo Garagori, who are a little bit more low-level, um, and uh, I believe Newsom as well was a guy that came in in short notice to take that fight. 
more often than not, you see Hikaru Hamush at a chalky line. So that's why it's surprising here to see him at some uh, at like a pick em or underdog spot, considering the amount of hype that was on him. But it seems like the steam has gone off him a little bit because of that Lerone Murphy knockout. Uh, minus 275 against Kyung Ho Kong, who's a very solid fighter himself. Uh, minus 170 against Saeed Nurmagomedov, and then he gets knocked, knocked out on that fight. Minus 380 against Journey Newsom. Uh, minus 430 against Eduardo Garagori. And then minus 185 even in his last fight even though he come, came up on the on the losing end. I still think he's a very talented fighter. You know, I mean, he has a very good, um, uh, he has very good striking. I think that's very uh, going to come into play here uh, as I believe that he should be able to be the cleaner striker against Bill Algio. And Algio, on the other hand, is a little bit loosey-goosey on the feet, um, doesn't really throw with crazy conviction, has some good kicks. And that's pretty much how he was able to remain successful against Spike Carlisle in terms of keeping Spike on the outside with that teep, with the spinning kicks and just kicks in general. And then whenever, uh, after that first round, where Spike's uh, zest off of his strikes were really gone, that's where we saw Aljo really start to crowd him up against the cage, clinch up against him and try to initiate some grappling grappling sequences where he thrives a little bit more. However, I think that Hikaru Hamosh is a much higher level jiu-jitsu player than him. And then if they do try tie up at certain instances, I think that we'll see Hamosh be the strong fighter and even if he decides to drag this fight to the ground i think he'll be the one that's a little bit busier on the ground for those of you that have been with me for a while now you guys remember that i did uh fade bill aljo in his ufc debut against ricardo lamas and that was a little bit of a sweat right i believe it was 1-1 going into that third round and then uh, we saw the veteran experience of ricardo lamas come through where he was able to take down bill aljo and uh, really grind on him and then secure that top spot and again he, he stayed ahead of him like aljo had plenty of opportunities to go out there and try to pull off a reversal of some sort but we saw uh, Ricardo Lamos pretty much a step ahead of him a step ahead of him at all times and keep him planted on the back uh, on his back for that entirety of that third round and secure that uh, decision victory I believe that was the um, the retirement fight for Ricardo Lamos as well so it's good that he was able to end his career on a victory um, then the Spike Carlisle fight right like it was in a hindsight, obviously, it, it seemed like a very good matchup for him, where he was able to stay away from the big power of Carlisle and then really put it on him in later fight uh, in the later rounds. I'm kind of stunned as to why the line is as close as it is, right? I still think that Lamas, uh, or sorry, Hamosh is a very high-level opponent, and I think he could go out there and easily spring the upset here. You know, again, I think he's the better kicker. I think he's the better striker. He has a lot better defense with his striking. You know, I mean, getting knocked out by Saeed or Magomedov and then getting ground and pounded the way that he did against Lerone Murphy, I'd find it very difficult to believe that Bill Algio will be able to replicate those types of performances. Um... You know, I'm I'm not the the biggest uh, fan of Aljo in terms of I don't think he's the, the 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 greatest fighter out there. I think he can be taken down if Hamosh decides to go that route, and I think that he can be outstruck on the outside if you know Aljo wants to play that loosey goosey game that he does on the outside. I think Hamosh does it much better. Now, does uh, Aljo have the knockout power to go out there and put out Hamosh's lights? Possibly, but I'm uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna fade that narrative that uh, Hamosh is chinny because I think that might be a narrative co coming into this week that people are gonna be like, look at him, he got finished twice in his last five fights. Look at the opponents. Look at the, the amount of uh, power that those guys have and the situations that uh, he actually or he got knocked out in. Right? Uh, again, I don't think that Aljo will be able to um, 
replicate that kind of performance. So I do like uh, Hamosh here. Uh, I think he'll strike Aljo on the outside if he decides to take it to the ground. I think he'll out grapple him there, maybe even find a submission of some sort. As we've, as we've seen, Bill Aljo tap twice in his uh, five losses. One of those actually coming to Shane Burgos, striker Shane Burgos. Not saying that Burgos is, uh, you know, incompetent on the ground or doesn't have any jujitsu skills, but I believe that Hamosh is a much higher level jujitsu player than Shane Burgos. With that said, I still do think that Hikaru Hamosh can go out there and outstrike Aljo, and that's the method that I'm going to take here. I'm going to take Hikaru Hamosh to win this fight via decision by just outpointing Aljo on the feet, and uh, you know maybe even get some control time up against the cage or on the ground here. So again, I think it's a bit of a steal that we're getting uh, Hikaru Hamosh at plus money here. So I'm going Hamosh uh, via decision. Luis Pena versus Alex Munoz. We got minus 145 on Violent Bob Ross and plus 125 on Alex Munoz. Let's start off on the Violent Bob Ross side of things here, who's coming off a submission loss to Kama Worthy. He was actually scheduled to fight Jakar Close a couple months ago. Uh, Jakar Close pulls out, I believe, the day of or the day before due to one of his corner men testing positive for COVID-19. And it's interesting both, that both of these guys are scheduled to fight on the same card now, but just not against each other. Uh, I wish they would have booked the fight together again considering that these guys were training for each other for as long as they were but now they just gotta have to flip the script and fight different opponents um regardless uh Luis Pena three and two in his last five fights not to mention being slightly over uh underwhelming now considering how much hype he had coming off of his uh ultimate fighter run obviously he loses that fight to Mike Trezano to give him his first ever L and then he goes on to lose to Matt Frivolo very close fight a war of a fight and then the comma worthy fight where he loses uh again where he wasn't really able to get his game going right it, it was interesting to see him pretty much go strike for strike for comma worthy in that first round lose that first round then go to his wrestling in the second round where he's very dominant but unfortunately was not able to get the finish in that fight and then in the third round we see comma worthy you know latch on this weird guilt uh, and Luis Pena was just in a very very bad position up against the cage where he just could not roll out or just could not spin out and was forced to tap that night uh, again he's 27 years old so he still has time to make improvements and he has a great frame for this 155 pound division or a very very weird lanky frame I should say 6'3 with a 75 inch reach so he's already going to have a what is that a two a five inch height advantage here over Alex Munoz as well as a three inch reach advantage um, with that said and with it said in terms of the the level of wrestling that Luis Pena has or is supposedly supposed to have, it's weird to see that he only has a 47% uh, takedown defense rate. Pretty much all of his opponents have gotten uh, or pretty much been able to take him down. And I feel like Alex Munoz is probably one of the better wrestlers that he's going to have fought up until this point in time. For those people that are not too familiar with Alex Munoz, he was originally from Team Takedown. And for people that don't remember Team Takedown, they were that team that Johnny Hendricks was out of uh, out of Texas. And, uh, you know, they had this weird system where they just had, you know, pretty much every fighter's paycheck went to the team and then they dispersed it out to the to, to the fighters from there. And then eventually that pretty much went to shit and uh, Alex Munoz decided to leave he ended up going to team alpha male and becoming their head wrestling coach so that's got to tell you something about the type of wrestling that Alex Munoz is bringing to the cage 
Now his striking still needs some work. It still needs to get to the point that he can go out there and, and be comfortable enough on the feet to compete with guys like Anasra Hakparast, who pretty much just beat him pillar to post in that fight. Outside of that first takedown that uh, Alex Munoz was able to secure at the beginning of the fight, he couldn't get the rest of his game going. Hakparast was having fun on the feet and really touching up Alex Munoz. Very unfortunate fight for Alex Munoz to have as his UFC debut. Right, he was on the contender series where he went up against Nick Newell and was able to control that fight with his wrestling and some good striking, um, but not an impressive enough performance for him to go out there and get a UFC contract. He did quickly bounce back and fight uh, Troy Lamson, a guy who's been notorious and notoriously known to be almost a tee-up fight for a lot of guys to eventually enter the UFC. Jesse Ronson is another guy that quickly got a victory over Jess, uh, over Troy Lamson and was propelled into getting back into the UFC, and that's exactly what Alex Munoz did. If I'm not mistaken, he came in on Troy Norris against Nazra Hakpras, so that might have a little bit, uh, bit to do with it, and he did end up taking his first loss in that fight. But I still think he has a lot to offer. He's 31 years old, so he's really going to have to get his game going here. But I think that the wrestling is going to tr be truly what sets him apart here from uh, Luis Pena. Again, that dismal 47% takedown defense rate is going to be tested here. And I think that Alex Munoz will be doing a good job of controlling Luis Pena, getting this fight to the ground or clinching him up against the gauge and being the more stronger fighter. But the longer this fight stays on the feet, the more I'm going to be biting my nails if I have a Alex Munoz ticket. With that said, plus 125 is not bad for a guy that you can pretty much guarantee is going to go out there and land takedowns. The Troy Lamson fight was a weird one, though, because both guys are high-level wrestlers, and we pretty much saw that one, you know, become a striking fight, and we saw Munoz get the better of uh, the majority of that fight on the feet. I rate Luis Pena striking much better than Troy Lamson, but I don't rate it as highly, or sorry, I don't rate his wrestling as highly as Troy Lamson, so I do think that it won't be a striking fight. I think that we're going to see uh, Munoz successful with getting this fight to the ground time and time again. It truly comes down to how durable he is and how good his jiu-jitsu will be from on top. My, <clears throat> excuse me, my thinking here or my logic here is that if Nazareth Hakparas couldn't knock out Alex Munoz I'd kind of be surprised if Luis Pena did now Luis Pena has a different striking style than Nazareth but Nazareth definitely has way more power in his hands than what than what we're going to be seeing from Luis Pena Pena is a little bit more dynamic of a striker and he's able to do his work from the outside again he's going to have a three inch reach advantage as well as a four or five inch height advantage here so you better believe that he's going to try to keep his distance but he's not the best distance striker like he still allows opponents to close the distance and he's more than likely going to get taken down here but is he going to be able to pull a submission off of his back that's where i think it's going to be a little bit risky here like are you going to trust a guy at minus 145 to get a submission off of his back knowing that he's going to be, get taken down time and time again and again, Alex Munoz, high-level wrestler, training with Team Alpha Male, you got to believe that they're getting his jiu-jitsu up to the point that he's going to be comfortable enough taking Pena down and then, you know, at least passing guard, getting to half-guard side control, whatever it is, so that he's out of the threat of a, a potential finish or a submission off of Luis Pena's back. Uh, it's just the, the progression from uh, Munoz's striking that I need to see to be a little bit more confident in here. A little bit more confident in Munoz in the spot. I still do lean him though. I still do think that we're going to see him get the takedowns. And I think that he's going to control Luis Pena for the majority of this fight. So I'm going to be going with Alex Munoz. And, you know, it's a little bit iffy though. Because, again, he's only 6-1 and one in his uh, pro MMA career. He's 31 years old. So he's going to have to get it going right now. And he's really going to have to start to tie that, that striking game together. Again, I feel bad that his UFC debut was on short Norris against a guy to the level of Nazra Hackpress, and we truly saw that Hackpress takedown defense was up to par. But 
Luis Pena's takedown defense is not. You know what I mean? So I think that Pena is criminally overrated at this point. And this is a guy that I've laid chalk on in the past. And maybe it's just that bad taste that he's left in my mouth. But I do think that Munoz will be, the style that Munoz brings and the durability that he seems to bring to the table will be a little bit too much for Pena to handle here. The last thing I'll say about Pena spent most of his time at AKA and then eventually moved down to ATT uh, where we've seen him work closely with guys like Mohamed Lawal and try to round out the, re- uh, the wrestling game of his but he's still getting taken down and I think that when he's going up against a high level D1 wrestler like Alex Munoz I don't see him how he's going to be consistently stuffing takedowns I think he's going to struggle to do so and then I think he's going to struggle to submit Alex Munoz off of his back so I'm going with uh, Alex Munoz here. I think he's worth a good shot at the at these dog at these dog odds that he's currently at. I'm not sure if he'll finish Pena. Maybe a decision prop is in a bad spot here for Pe- uh, Munoz. But I'm going to go with Alex to win this fight via decision, just by crowding, clinching up against Pena up against the cage, and then dragging him to the down and ground, and uh, accumulating a solid amount of top pressure and top control. So I'm going Alex Munoz via decision. Abdul Razak Al Hassan versus Jacob Malkoon. We got minus 300 on Al Hassan here and plus 250 on Malkoon. Now, this breakdown is not going to take that long to go uh, to go through, right? I am fully expecting Razak Al Hassan to go out there and absolutely start Jacob Malkoon. And more often than not, I try to give these guys that are coming off of relatively quickly knockouts, I try to give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, right? Uh, but with Malkoon, he's pretty much stepping into the same fight this time around. Last time it was Phil Hodge, starts him in, I think, 30 seconds or so. And now you're getting Al Hassan, who's coming up in weight. He's coming up to middleweight. If you guys remember, Al Hassan missed weight twice in a row down at Welterweight. The UFC is probably just like, hey, you got to go up. There's no way you can miss three fights in a row. You can't miss weight three fights in a row. So uh, to in order to to uh, avoid that, he decided to go up to 185 pounds. And I'm very intrigued to see how he fills out at this weight class. However, his game plan still is probably not going to change. He's going to go out there. He's going to crash forward and he's going to land some big bombs on Malkoon. And I fully expect Malkoon to be eating the canvas uh, very shortly after the, uh, the starting bell rings here. Malkoon, most people will know him as the main jiu-jitsu pl- uh, coach and training partner of Robert Whitaker, but that doesn't really help out the rest of his game right there's not much else really on the bone there in terms of what he brings to the table um good strike like decent striking and seemed like he had dur- solid durability on the regional scene but once he starts fighting heavy hitters like phil Hawes and abdul razak al-hassan it starts to go down the drain and i think i'm fully expecting the same type of approach here from al-hassan most of his wins and i'd say pretty much all of his wins have come in that first round where he just goes out there and torches opponents right away it's when fights start going later into the fight like second or third round where his output and his power really starts to dwindle and that's where his opponents are really starting to take over but i'm just finding it hard to believe that malkun's going to go out there and really survive that first little onslaught that razak al-hassan is going to bring to the table um I think the approach here is obviously Razak by KO or the under one and a half. And I think that's the way you're going to go here if you're stuck between money line and totals. You're going to go under one and a half if you're looking to bet Al-Hassan here. You're getting around minus 140. I'm expecting the line to get up to about minus 150 to minus 160 as that's more often than not the, the path to victory here for Al-Hassan. So I'm expecting him to go out there get the relatively quick knockout over Malkoon and cast the under one and a half play. So I'm going Razak Al-Hassan to be successful in his middleweight debut in the UFC to be knocking out uh, Jacob Malkoon in round one. Andre Arlovsky versus Chase Sherman. We got minus 140 on Andre Arlovsky and plus 
120 on Chase Sherman. And this fight is slowly closing in terms of uh, the odds. And I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, Chase Sherman go off as the f uh, favorite come fight time here. Now, I believe Andre Arlowski is stepping in on short notice after he had lost to Tom Aspinall back at the ending of February. And that was uh, his first submission loss in a long time. I'm not entirely sure if that's actually his first ever submission loss ever, period. But, um, uh, this is an intriguing fight here coming in against Chase Sherman, who's coming off a USADA violation last time around. Uh, you know, he he went out there and beat Ike Villanueva, but then quickly tested positive. And you got to give the guy a little bit of benefit of the doubt, right? He's coming in on that fight in short notice. Um, and whatever sauce he was on uh, prior to that on the regional scene, there's no way that he could have gotten out of his system taking that fight on short notice. Um, but we went out there and saw Chase Sherman 2.0, right? We saw him pretty much bring what he was doing on the regional scene uh, after he had originally been cut from the UFC after losing to a Augusto Sakai. Goes out there and starts implementing a calf-kicking game, and that's been very uh, successful for him over his last four fights. I'm expecting him to bring the same type of approach here against Andre Olovsky, who is you know usually very heavy on that front foot, throws with a lot of combinations, and usually his volume and output has been getting him his, his victories uh, at least you know two of his last three fights um, but I think that Chase Sherman is really going to start to slow down Arlovsky once he really starts to beat up, beat up that front leg now what's the durability of Sherman going to look like right usually when guys are coming off of USADA suspensions or coming off of some crazy steroids the durability seems to take a bit of a hit but Andre Arlovsky hasn't really been a huge power puncher as of late so I don't know if that's truly going to come into play here or if he's just going to go out there and try to look to outpoint uh, Chase Sherman but once he starts feeling those calf kicks I think it's really going to start to get to Andre Arlovsky that he's going to have to throw with a little bit more power in his hands Chase Sherman has always seemed to be the butt of the joke in the MMA betting community but you can't uh, dismiss what you've been seeing from him from his last four fights obviously level of competition is nowhere near what he's going to be getting here against Andre Arlovsky but you got to like what you've been seeing from him in terms of an, an approach and the game plan that he's bringing into the cage again calf kick calf kick calf kick He's going to go out there and look to do that here against uh, Andre Arlovsky, and I think that's going to allow uh, him to get his hands going, which could potentially allow him to start touching the chin of Arlovsky and really start to damage him from there. Now, Arlovsky does have a very solid chin still. Like A lot of people are writing his chin off, thinking that he's not durable anymore, but he's been eating some big shots from his uh, past couple of opponents and still kept chugging forward. Um, I'm not sure if Chase Sherman really has that knockout power to put Andre Arlovsky out, but I'm not going to count him out. However, I will still say that Chase Sherman goes out there and methodically picks apart Andre Arlovsky with a game plan that's centered around leg kicks, and we're going to go out there and see him win via decision in this spot. Uh, again, the, the only hesitation that I have here is the fact that he's coming off a USADA suspension and how much of uh, an effect that truly had, or a positive effect it truly had on Chase Sherman's game, especially with his stretch through that uh, Fight Island or Island Fights promotion, I believe, that he used to fight for. Uh, again, after he got cut from the UFC and before he came back in that Isaac Villanueva fight. It's crazy how active. Andre Arlovsky has been staying, especially during this COVID era. If not, if I'm not mistaken, he fought Philippe Lins, Tanner Boza, and Tom Aspinall all during this COVID era. And this is, I'm talking about, you know, just under a year uh, of, of work. So I think COVID started in March. They came back in May. So from May all the way until February, that's nine months. He's had three fights. So, you know, solid for Andre Arlovsky at 42 years old to be remaining that active. And I'm sure he's getting a solid six-figure paycheck every time he steps into that cage. 
Uh, but I think that Chase Sherman style is going to be a little bit too much for him here. And I completely understand why the line is starting to look like that it might swing in terms of uh, Chase Sherman ending up as the uh, at the favorite come fight time. So I'm going Chase Sherman. I'm going to pick him to win by decision. But I'm not completely outruling out the fact that this could potentially uh, be a knockout for Chase Sherman as well. So once again, Chase Sherman to win this fight via decision. Drakkar Close versus Jeremy Stevens. We got minus 125 on Jeremy Stevens and plus 105 on Drakkar Close. Let's start off on the Jeremy Stevens side of things, who's on a 0-4 and 1-0 contest streak right now. Very unfortunate run and very tumultuous run that he's on. And that's on the back end of a three-fight winning streak where he was able to have very impressive performances that included knockout victories over Duho Choi and Josh Emmett. I believe there was a Gilbert Melendez victory squeeze in there as well but he seemed to be a guy that was kind of rejuvenated it seemed like he was a guy that was um you know seemed um like he had found his step finally in the UFC he doesn't have the greatest UFC record if I'm not mistaken I believe he, he holds the record or the most unfortunate record for most losses in the UFC but he's still been around for a very long time he has evolved his game a lot and there are a couple of new wrinkles that he's been adding as of late and it's really you know uh, it was paying off for him in that three-fight winning streak, but unfortunately, you know, the Jose Aldo fight started that fight off relatively well until Jose Aldo was able to find that beautiful body shot, liver punch, whatever it was, that crumpled Jeremy Stevens, and he was able to follow up with a, ball, a lot of shots to put him out there. Then we had the Zabit Magomed Sharapov fight, you know, just completely outclassed in that fight, just wasn't able to get his game going. The Yair Rodriguez no contest. If you guys remember, that was a 15-second fight. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, that actually took place in Mexico City. Headliner as well. Uh, and uh, within the first 15 or so seconds, Yair Rodriguez pokes his eyes. And unfortunately, Jeremy Stevens is not able to continue there. Then they have this huge grudge match in a couple, uh, I believe it was a couple months later. They actually ended up throwing down in Boston as uh, the co-main event of that uh, Dominic Reyes and Chris Weidman card. And uh, Yair Rodriguez did a really good job in terms of uh, one of those first two rounds. But then his uh, cardio and his output started to decline very drastically and we saw um jeremy stevens go out there and really start to take over uh you know almost a close 10-8 round in that third round was really putting it on yair unfortunately he ran out of time now if that was a five rounder you know it probably would have been a jeremy stevens fight or at least the momentum was starting to swing that way but then you got to have to take into consideration what kind of game plan yair would have adjusted to had it been five rounds rather than three three rounds and then lastly, uh, his fight against Calvin Cater. You know, Cater, a very high-level fighter. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that was the first fight back after the whole uh, COVID situation. Um, and yeah, that you know, he ended up getting knocked out in the second round, but he was doing a good job of really attacking the lead leg of Calvin Cater, similar to the game plan that Hanato Moikano was able to establish against uh, Calvin Cater. Unfortunately for Stevens, Cater's hands were just too much for him. And then eventually that beautiful elbow that landed right on like the lip area of uh, Jeremy Stevens dropped him, and then he followed up with a huge barrage of ground and pound uh, with this beautiful elbow as well that was able to really hurt uh jeremy stevens opened up a huge cut on him too and uh that put away jeremy stevens so very tumultuous run that he's been on but can you really you know be mad at the level of competition that he's been going up against yeah he was a very slight favorite against jose aldo going into that fight but i think a lot of people were just overlooking jose and i if i'm not mistaken i actually ended up playing jose that night Magomed Sharapov comes in as a plus 260 underdog. All right, he loses. Unfortunate contest to Yair Rodriguez. 
momentum was swinging his way in the rematch against Rodriguez and then Calvin Cater, right? So even though he's winless in his last five fights, he can't really be mad given the level of competition he's been going up against. Drakkar Close, on the other hand, you know, a guy who is uh, who went three and two in his uh, last five fights, level of competition has just been completely different outside of Benil Darius, who's obviously on a, a streak right now. But, uh, you know, lost to David Tamor, who, you know, technically speaking, a much better striker and was able to really stay on the outside of Drakkar Close and land his kicks and do some good combinations from the outside. Lando Venata fight, another one uh, where he's able to go out there and actually get his game going. Bobby Green, that was no, a weird one, right? Statistic, statistically speaking, Bobby Green seemed to have him outpointed and outcontrolled in that fight, yet Drakkar Close still gets his hand raised. Christos Yagos has some success in the grappling realm, takes him down, takes his back a couple times. But uh, the longer the fight was on the fade, Drakkar was able to uh, start to uh, outpoint him, and then Yagos' cardio really did start to drop off later in those fights. Then the Benio Darius, right? Uh, gets his back taken the entire uh, first round. Does a really good job with the submission defense to not get tapped out by a high-level jiu-jitsu black belt in Benio. But then in that second round, they go to absolute war. He rocks Benny. Benny comes back, rocks him, and then ultimately finishes him. He's taken off some solid amount of time since then. It's been over a year since he's been in the cage. But if you guys do remember, he was scheduled to fight Luis Pena. A couple months ago, unfortunately, uh, one of Close's cornermen had to, uh, oh, sorry, he tested positive for COVID and uh, he was uh, pulled out of that fight. Now he does get here, uh, rebooked here against Jeremy Stevens. Now, how these guys match up stylistically, I got to lean on the Jeremy Stevens side of things, which I, which is why I believe that he's the favorite. I find it kind of weird that he went from minus 155 down to minus 125, as I believe this fight is going to mainly take place on the feet. Both guys are great leg kickers, and I believe Jeremy Stevens has a little bit more zest on his shots, but not to mention the ability or the advantage he should have on the feet here in regards to the power that if these guys do end up training. Drakkar Close is really going to have to stay on his, uh, you know, his bicycle here. He can't trade in the pocket against Jeremy Stevens here, who historically is a very good, uh, who has a very good uh, durability or has a very good chin, right? Outside of that Calvin Cater knockout, which again, wasn't really a knockout, like it was a TKO. He got put on his butt, don't get me wrong, and got TKO'd there, but he's never really gotten clean out. Even the Jose Aldo one, that was a body shot that crippled him. But before then, you have to go all the way back to 2012, which I believe uh, Eve Edwards put him out. So historically speaking, he's a very durable opponent. Jogar Close never really has had, he's never had a knockdown recorded in the UFC. Yeah, he hurt Benio Darius, but was obviously not able to put him away in that fight. Um, but you have to go back to his early, early career to find him really knocking out guys and really uh, having an advantage in that aspect in terms of power. So if these guys are trading on the feet, I do lean Jeremy Stevens here, who's going to have more threat in terms of, uh, you know, possibly landing a knockout blow or at least having more... Uh, um, success with the leg kicks you know we've seen him cripple opponents in the past and force them to change positions and they're obviously not the best when it comes to um um you know adjusting to working out of their secondary stance i don't think Drakkar close is the greatest out of his secondary stance either so i do lean jeremy stevens here you know obviously the much more experienced fighter it's weird that he's only 34 years old similar to like sam alvey this past weekend who has a million fight miles on him but is only 34 years old 
seems the same thing here with Jeremy Stevens. Now, does that mean that we saw Sam Alvey get cracked and, uh, you know, get put out the way that he did and obviously submitted uh, quickly thereafter by Julie Marquez? Do we think that's going to happen here to Jeremy Stevens? I beg to differ. You know, the difference with Sam Alvey is that we've seen him get knocked out twice in his last five fights. Whereas Jeremy Stevens, yeah, he's been knocked out in two of his last five fights as well, but they came by different uh, knockouts, right? Uh, TKOs and, and, and the body shot. But... And again, let's add in the fact that Jakar Close isn't a crazy power puncher either. So, ultimately, I got to go with Jeremy Stevens here. I think he's going to probably even knock out Jakar Close, but I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, considering his only real knockout loss was to Benio Darius last time around in a crazy firefight. But I will go with Jeremy Stevens to win this fight via decision by just picking him apart, you know, the landing the more damaging shots, uh, being more effective with the leg kicks, even though that Jakar Close has a very good leg kicking game of his own. So I'll go with Jeremy Stevens here, and I'm going to pick him to win this fight via decision. Time for the main event. We got Robert Whitaker going up against Kelvin Gaslam. And this is a fight that I am uber excited for, considering we were supposed to get it back at UFC 234 back in February of 2019. Uh, Kelvin Gaslam steps in on short notice here, I believe, for one Paulo Costa, as that was one fight that I was, again, another one that I was very much looking forward to that probably could have propelled Robert Whitaker back into a title shot. Even a win here over Kelvin Gaslam could give him that right, considering that he's on that would make him on a three-fight winning streak with wins over Darren Till and Jared Cannonier. If you guys remember, Jared Cannonier was promised a title shot if he was able to go out there and beat Robert Whitaker by Israel Adesanya himself. He said after he had beaten Paulo Costa, he goes, if Jared Cannonier goes out there, handles his business against Bobby Knuckles, Jared Cannonier is next. Unfortunately, we saw Robert Whitaker go out there and absolutely, you know, pretty much outpointing him over 15 minutes. Outside of getting rocked a little bit in that uh, third round, Robert Whitaker had a really good uh, sense of awareness and ability to just be like, okay, we only have about 30 seconds left in this fight. Let me clinch this up. I know I'm a little bit hurt, but let me get, you know, body to body. Let me clinch this up so the power and zest of uh, the Jared Cannonier shots are truly off there. Now, Robert Whitaker had a lot of success in terms of hurting Jared Cannonier as well because he has a sneaky uh, combination where he throws a, a hook with his opposite hand and then throws um, uh, throws a head kick or a sneaky head kick right behind it because his opponent is starting to, you know, fade off to, to, the, to the far side. And that's where we see uh, Robert Whitaker land a beautiful head kick. I believe that's exactly the combination that put out Jacare Souza uh, earlier in Robert Whitaker's career. And it's been one of his best shots that he's been able to land against his opponents. Um, Whitaker is a very sneaky striker, right? He almost has a karate type style stance where he's just bouncing on his feet from the outside. And then whenever he moves in, he 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 takes his head off the center line and he's able to just wing his shots right over. And it's a couple like two, three, four shot uh, blitzes that he comes in with that it just catches his opponents off uh, off guard. That was very successful against Darren Till, very successful against Jared Cannonier. But when you have a guy like Israel Adesanya, it was just a lot tougher to pull off uh, against a guy like that. And then he does a good job from the outside, which is like kicking the leg. And that's another solid part of his game. But he just stays so far out of his opponent's range uh, that it's hard for them to truly get a beat on him. Um, now, Kevin Ga Kelvin Gaslam on the flip side. Again, these guys were scheduled to go back, uh, go out at UFC 234 for the title at the time. Uh, but then uh, Whitaker pulls out the morning of the fight. That's where we see Israel Adesanya and uh, Anderson Silva actually get propelled to the uh, to the main event. Uh, and it still only ended up being a three-rounder. Uh, but but regardless, right after that, we see Kelvin Gaslam get booked against Israel Adesanya for an interim title fight a couple months later. 
Whitaker sits out, eventually fights as a lot of Sonya, gets knocked out, and he loses his belt. But now he's on a bit of a redemption run, right? He's not in a rush to get his title shot again, but is doing a good job in terms of staying active and racking up some names where it's going to get to the point where it's almost undeniable that you got to give this guy a title shot again. Um, in this shot, in this fight, I feel like he matches up very well against Gaslam. Gaslam, and I feel like a lot of people are kind of like almost misguided regarding the run that Gaslam is on since his fight against uh, Israel Adesanya the first time. Uh, so since then, we've seen uh, Calvin Gaslam go one and two. He loses the fight after the Adesanya fight where he gets outpointed by Darren Till. And that's an interesting fight because I feel like something similar could, uh, or you could take some bits of that fight and implement it here with Robert Whittaker. Something that Darren Till did very impressively was just stay out of range where Calvin Gaston wasn't able to get his big shots off. The last time we've seen Calvin Gaston actually put anybody out was the uh, Michael Bisbing fight from several years ago. Uh, but since then, he hasn't really had success in, term in terms of putting guys' lights out. He did have success in terms of hurting Israel Adesanya, but he just didn't have uh, enough on it to truly put him out. But the Darren Till fight, again, a, a true good experience or a true good replica of what Robert Whitaker could, could potentially do. Again, staying on the outside like Whitaker does, he bounces well enough that he could move in when he needs to, to get his shots off, and then he can move out whenever uh, Calvin Gaston wants to throw some of his shots or, or start to come forward. There is obviously the chance of the counter of whenever Whitaker does come in and Calvin Gaslam kind of just stands his ground and throws his punches. So that's something that Whitaker's going to have to worry about, especially having 25 minutes of it to have to worry about. Uh, I think it does put Whitaker into some bad situations. But then we see like the 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 technique and the, the crafty striking of Whitaker bail him out of some bad spots. Like he ate some good shots against Darren Tail and Jared Cannonier and was able to keep moving forward, right? Like obviously Cannonier had some success at the end of that fight, but it wasn't enough to truly put Robert Whitaker out. Is Calvin Gaslam gonna be able to do that? Uh, and then in terms of moving forward past the Darren Toe fight for Calvin Gaslam, the Jack Hermanson fight completely gets out-muscled. Um, you know, uh, I believe Hermanson goes for a takedown. Gaslam does a good job of reversing that position, but then it was just too much strength for him to deal with when Jack Hermanson went for that leg and got that heel hook finish on him. The Ian Heinish fight was a good way for him to bounce back since he had not won a fight since that fight against Jacques Ray Souza four fights earlier. Um, but that was a fight where, you know, he, he pretty much was the much better fighter than Heinish. Was able to outgrapple him, even though Heinish seemed like the stronger fighter. And then he was landing the better shots on the feet. But it's still intriguing that he was able to pull that off, considering a lot of people were starting to write him off. You know, I, I'm still of the belief that Gaslam would be most effective at welterweight, but it seems like those days are long gone. He's 29 years old. It could potentially still happen if he doesn't want to go out there and try to change the trajectory of his career to just being like this middling middleweight. Um, and again, losing against a guy like Robert Whitaker should truly put it into perspective for him that he's not going to be able to compete at a high level at this weight class. But my, my thing here is that I think Whitaker is going to be a little bit too slick on the feet for him. Uh, the way that I think Kelvin Gaslam could kind of swing this fight in his favor is if he goes out there and tries to implement his grappling game. Like, since he's been in the UFC, since his Ultimate Fighter run, the guy's a very solid grappler, and he transitions very well. He's usually one step ahead of his opponents. Um, his his jujitsu is very well. He takes the back very well. Uh, and Whitaker, you know, we haven't seen too much of him on the ground. Yoel Romero, as good of a wrestler as he is, he just doesn't use it as effectively as somebody should with his prowess in wrestling. 
And even his last couple fights, Adesanya didn't want to take him down. Darren Till didn't want to take him down. Jared Cannonier didn't want to take him down. But one thing that I like about Whitaker and the, you know, possibly nullifying the grappling advantage that Gaston will have here is that Whitaker keeps his hands down, right? And that has him ready and ready to go for any type of grappling type of situation. So if Gaston wants to shoot in, I think he's much more at the ready to sprawl and also dig underhooks which will obviously allow him to kind of you know muscle Kelvin Gaston back up to his feet and, and stay on the feet even if Gaston tries to like push him up against the cage it's just he's gonna have to worry about if Gaston like feigns a takedown and comes back up with some strikes he's gonna have to make sure that he's you know hiding and tucking that chin at a certain point that chin of Robert Whitaker's is gonna crack again Israel Adesanya was very successful in doing so and then Yoro Romero you know, we saw all those fights and all those uh, uh, knockdowns that Romero was able to have against Whitaker. And Whitaker is definitely showing signs of a shaking chin. But it's kind of like Sadiq Yusuf from this past weekend, right? Where we see him get hurt so many times, but he just never gets put out. It's very, um, you know, it, it's just about it's just a matter of time before it before it ends up cracking and actually go uh, actually taking him out. Kevin Gaslam again, he hasn't knocked out anybody since his fight with. Um, since his fight with uh, Michael Bisming. And that was Michael Bisming coming back relatively quickly after he had lost his title to George St. Pierre only a couple weeks before we got his brain rattled and ultimately choked out. So how much power does Gaslam truly have in his hands? And how much stock do we have to continue putting into his law or performance of a lifetime loss against uh, Israel Adesanya? Because we're going to have to start to move away from that, right? Another fight that comes to, 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 or another comparison that comes to mind is like Nina Ansroff, or I should say Nina Nunes, when she fought Claudia Gadelia. And that's a fight that I feel like truly skewed the impression and, and the skill set of Nina Nunes. You know, she was having fight against, she was having close fights against Ronda Marcos, and then she goes out there and beats a high-level opponent like Claudia Gadelia. But we know that if you're able to kind of survive that first round and start to put pressure on her, that Gedelia's gas tank will fail her, and then you you should be able to go out there and and just outpoint her for the rest of the fight. And then we go into the Tatiana Suarez fight. Obviously, that's a very tough fight to truly gauge how good Nina Ansaroff is. But then she goes out there and loses to Mackenzie Dern relatively easily, right? She gets a takedown, even though that Mackenzie Dern was one of 18 on takedowns uh, for the majority of her career. All she needed was one to get Nina Nunes down, and she was able to submit her. So it's almost the same thing here with Calvin Gaslam. How long are we going to put stock into that Israel Adesanya fight? You know, he caught him with a couple good shots. There was, you know, it was pretty much 2-2 going into that fifth round just because of the shots that he was able to land and hurt Adesanya with. And I, I can't remember the exact rounds. But again, we, we can't keep putting stock into that fight if he's not giving us uh, results in his next fights, right? He's 1-2 since that fight. And Robert Whitaker is another high-level opponent here. Probably the best opponent he's fought since Israel Adesanya. Darren Till is another guy who's trying to get a little bit more overrated. So I do like Whitaker here. I, you know, I can say that I'm truly confident to the point of, um, you know, saying that he's a 100% lock or anything like that, considering that his chin could potentially crack. And Calvin Gaston has shown the ability to crack guys and hurt them and knock them out. Um but given the expertise that Whitaker has on the feet, given his ability to move in and out of distance pretty much at will and then land the better shots and stay on the outside and kind of nullify the amount of strikes that are coming his way, 
And again, I truly think that Calvin's striking style is a little bit basic. You know, what I mean, there the, the times that he rocked Israel Adesanya is when he adds a little bit more than is just you know straight right down the middle and his left hook or his jab or whatever the hell it is. It's when he adds that head kick that he hurts Israel Adesanya. But we still don't see that. Like we still see it every now and then. We but we just don't see it to the point where it's truly effective that he can beat guys like Darren Till and beat guys like Jack Hermanson as you know short of a fight as that was. So, uh, yeah, I like Robert Whitaker here. I'm going to take him to win this fight via decision, uh, but it will be a little bit of a, night, a nail-biter. Just as the Darren Till fights were, and just as the Jared Cannonier fight was, the chin is always going to be a concern here for Robert Whitaker. But the more that he distanced himself from that Israel Adesanya knockout, the more you should be able to trust him and be okay with laying the minus 260 or chalky line on Robert Whitaker. So the value could potentially be on Gaslam here. But if we're picking winners, I'm going to go with Robert Whitaker. And I think that he's going to go out there and win this fight via decision. And those are the breakdowns. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. If you guys haven't already, make sure you guys like and subscribe. And if you want to further support your boy, check out the Patreon. Link is in the description below. Five bucks a month gives you all access to my picks, early breakdowns, best bets and props article, not to mention a bunch of other shit like the, the Discord channel and as well as the pay-per-view parlay for the patrons. That's actually going to be going uh, live once again next week for UFC 261 where I give a poll out to all the patrons. You guys vote on the top four spots, money line and totals. Uh, top four get put into a parlay and i put five percent of my monthly take from patreon which is definitely a lot more than it was last month considering the the run that i'm on and all the love that i've been getting to patreon so i'll be putting five percent of my monthly take from patreon on this four leg parlay if the four leg parlay hits the money gets paid out to a random randomly selected patron member that i eventually do a draw for the the following day after the pay-per-view so a ton of great things to love on the Patreon, and most importantly, you're supporting your boy to continue making this thing a full-time thing and allowing me to live my dream so I can give you guys the best betting analysis that I can to hopefully put some more uh, dollars in your pocket. All right, appreciate you, guys, appreciate you guys checking out the episode. Good luck with your bets this week, and I'll see you guys once again next week.